consists necessarily of uh, technical explanations. But what we have problems with are the fruits of God's Spirit. Uh, with living our religion, that is our biggest problem. And we need to consider God's words on a lot of subjects. I left off, I believe, last week in Ephesians 4. And I want to go back there for a moment and review that one scripture, Ephesians 4. Uh, where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the eternal, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now here he's actually saying what I just said with different words. That we walk worthy of the vocation that we are called to. And then he tells us what the attitude should be. What is required to walk worthy of that vocation. He didn't just say it. Then he explains, with all lowliness and meekness. Now, what do we see echoed throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament? Every so often, whichever prophet is speaking will get down to uh, instruction for us. And inevitably, they will talk about meekness and humility and righteousness. Attitudes of mind that are in short supply. <clears throat> and that's what Paul starts with here with all lowliness and meekness with long suffering that is essentially patience and there is a subtle difference between long suffering and patience they use different Greek words and I'll get to that a little later on for bearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that's the ultimate goal is to keep the unity of the Spirit of God in the bond of peace. What will we need throughout all eternity? Bonds of love and peace. And be unified together and thought and in action and in spirit and mind. That's what we'll need. And that's what we need today. And it takes a meek and humble attitude and it takes patience and long-suffering with one another. That's what it takes in order to create that unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that we're seeking. So this is not an unimportant thing. It is one of the fruits of the Spirit, as we read in Galatians 5 last week. And if it is one of the fruits of the Spirit, if we have God's Spirit, then we should be showing patience, shouldn't we? Doesn't that make sense? Is there, is there any problem with our reasoning? If we're impatient, we don't have enough of the Spirit of God. That's what it amounts to. And therefore, we need to be going about our Father's business of obtaining His Spirit and therefore obtaining patience and all the other fruits that go with that. So it is one of the major characteristics of God's Spirit is patience. No getting around that. All right, with that background and, and review then, let's go to Colossians 1. Now, the leadership of the New Testament church, and I may have mentioned this last week, had problems blending all these peoples of different cultures together in love. Because you had Jews and Gentiles who basically hated one another, even as you have problems in the Middle East today with people hating one another and looking down upon one another if they weren't from a certain place, certain culture, whatever. 
you know, up in Boston, they put R's on the end of words. And down south, they put the R in the middle of the word. I noticed Nelson was saying working. I've never seen an R in there. <laughs> well, we can't look down on him because he's from the south and says wash. He's been from Connecticut, I mean from uh, Massachusetts, he'd have put the R on the end of a word that doesn't have an R. Uh, so, on and on it goes. There are cultural differences. There are different ways of looking at things. And that's just a very, very simple example of you know, just differences in the way people pronounce words. That's very common in the South, and it's very common in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Connecticut, or <laughs> that's not the one they stick it on, but they just hook it on wherever they want. Well, we don't need to look down upon them because they're from that northeastern United States, um, or wherever they happen to come from. We're here to be bonded together in love and peace. But the fact that Paul addresses these things so often shows that there was truly a problem there of getting people of different minds and cultures to come together and bend those backgrounds in unity and peace. So he constantly, in, in these pastoral letters, goes back to that kind of instruction. So let's pick it up then in Colossians 1. He's talking about, verse 5, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel. So, we're talking about eternal life here. This is pretty important, what he's addressing. And God saw fit to include it in the Bible, his holy writ, verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. These are things that we need to be doing that he, as the pastor to the Colossians, passed along. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Some interesting elements are added here. All patience. We know what patience means in English, don't we? means to wait patiently. We can wait impatiently sometimes, but patience infers that we wait patiently and long-suffering with joyfulness. Now, when we are suffering long with someone and they don't seem to want to straighten up and we have to put up with them, it is hard to suffer long in joyfulness. Isn't it? But long-suffering is connected here with joyfulness. In that sense, they're inseparable. So the attitude during our suffering long with someone needs to be in joy toward them of what they will ultimately become as they grow and mature. We lose patience with our children sometimes. And it's hard to be joyful when they are being rebellious. It's hard to be joyful when they are causing us all manner of frustration. Well, maybe yours aren't that way, but mine were. And I had to work at, I guess, I don't know that I had even noticed the concept back then 
of suffering along with joyfulness. That's, uh, maybe I never picked up on that before. Now, I was joyous to have my children. I was joyous to see them grow. And it takes time, doesn't it? They, they don't just become mature overnight. It takes time for them to grow up, 18, 20, 40, 50 years, whatever it takes. My, my dad was still hoping I would before he died. And my mom, I guess, still does, if she remembers me. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Uh, she's been having some, uh, some little problems with memory lapses, but not that bad. See, she hopes I'll go up and quit making stupid statements like this. You're probably listening today. <laughs> but we all suffer along with our children, and yet they are a joy to be around. And I think that's what he's saying here, is that we need to have patience with one another and at the same time be joyful that that person is here, that that person can grow, that that person can come to the maturity of Jesus Christ in his life. So it's like we're working with our children, or we're all the children of God, and showing that long-suffering with patience one upon another. Maybe I started to say it wrong there, uh, because it's easy, perhaps, for us to say, well, I'm the parent, and, and my brother or sister over here is the child, and put ourselves above them. So we want to be careful with that, and I, I think it's a better analogy to say we're all the children of God, and the joyful long-suffering needs to be with each other while he sits up there and suffers long with us as his children. That's the proper perspective. He's rearing children just like we did and are. And he has to be very patient with us, knowing that we will grow up someday. We really will. And we have to give each other credit for that as well. Giving thanks verse 12, to the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. So that's the goal of all this. We're not trying to be patient just for the exercise of vanity. We're trying to be, learn to be patient and have the Spirit of God so that we can become a part of the kingdom of God. Very good purpose for which we are doing what we are doing. Now let's go to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. He continues with his pastoral uh, instruction. And he starts this chapter uh, telling us to set our affection on things above, verse 2, not on things on the earth. And then he says, because we're dead to sin and to our way of life, we are to give up a lot of things that have been a part of our nature and character. And that is a list of sins. And I don't want to go into that today. I want to stay more on the positive side of this and skip down to what he tells us we should do as growing Christians. Verse 12. Put on, therefore. I mean, you take off the sin. You've got to put something else on, okay? You can't just sit there and do nothing. You, you quit sinning, and you start doing something else. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's the way God looks upon us. Uh, the sermonette just gave a, just read a scripture which talks about how we are kings and priests. Uh, notable in, I mean, that wasn't the point. I just, my eye caught it. 
notable in that it's not talking as in Revelation 5.10 where it says we'll be kings and priests on the earth in the millennium, but we are already considered kings and priests. That's the way God looks upon us. We don't have crowns and people following around us and, and bowing before us <laughs> in that sense at all, and, and that would be strange. That's not what he's talking about. But God is very positive about this. Now, that is joyful long-suffering. We're not there yet. He's suffering with us, but he already calls us kings and priests. Now, if that's what you call, that's how you ought to act. And it doesn't have to be the kind of kingship and priesthood that we see in the world. Uh, it's according to God's word kind of king and priest he wants. So he calls us the elect of God, holy and beloved, kings and priests in another place, a particular people in another place, a lot of good things God says about us that we have to live up to. And then he says, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Same attitudes of mind that we've read in many other places and I've already read today. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. We've already read that if we forgive, we'll be forgiven. If we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. Very plain statement of Scripture back in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, repeated several times there and throughout the Bible. So one of the key qualities that we're to be seeking is long-suffering and patience. Forbearing one another, that is, if someone does something, we forbear to get angry. We forbear to put down. We forbear to criticize. Isn't that what forbearing means? We eliminate that from our mind, emotion, and vocabulary. And it takes humility and meekness to do that. Because when we have someone say something about us, or do something to us, the automatic reaction of a human being is pride, and vanity, and ego. So, that's what it's all about. And you have to choose on a daily basis to be meek and humble. Every time you hear something that would be damaging to your psyche, let's say, you have to choose to be meek. Choose to be humble. doesn't come automatically. <clears throat> I don't know how many times I'll repeat this uh, principle in different ways, but it's something we simply have to learn, is that every thought that didn't, uh, didn't not Paul, but Solomon say that all thoughts are vanity. Didn't David express that in different ways in the Psalms and the Proverbs? Different, different writers throughout the Bible. That man in his present state is altogether vanity. So every thought of the mind has to do by nature with self, ego, and vanity. So every thought that comes into your mind has to be brought into captivity and turned from vanity and ego and self to meekness and humility and esteeming the other better than yourself. 
that is a tall order. But it's something we need to consciously be aware of every day of our lives, every opportunity we have to talk with or communicate or fellowship with other people, to be putting aside thoughts of vanity and coming forth with meekness. And every last one of us fails in that every last day. It is a process of overcoming and choosing the right attitude. I don't even think you could keep score. We face so many decisions each day, so many attitudes that are possible each day. And each one needs to be sorted out and meekness and humility long-suffering and patience chosen. Now that's Paul's instruction to the Colossian church, same as the Ephesian church, same as the Roman church, same as all the churches, to all people, because all people have the problem of being impatient, being not being long-suffering one with another. Let's go from there to 1 Corinthians 13. I think that this is a good subject for us to be considering before Passover, considering what Christ has done for us and how patient he and his Father have been with us. But let's notice it here, 1 Corinthians 13. We all know the love chapter. Very familiar with it. And I know at least one religion that seems like tongues is their main doctrine. Picking it up in verse 1. If you can speak with the tongues of men, all the languages of men, and the language of angels, if you don't have love, you're nothing. You have nothing. Though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. My head's just full of all these things, and I understand them all. And don't have love, you have nothing. Even though you had faith to move all mountains, or remove mountains, and don't have love, you are nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profits me nothing. You can give your body to be burned out of vanity and ego and selfishness. Do you think those Palestinians who are blowing themselves up on a regular basis have love? They've got hatred in their heart. But they feel that they're sacrificing themselves as martyrs and doing the will of Allah. They think they will be rewarded by God for doing that. They actually have nothing there. Now he changes it in verse 4. And I want you to notice the change here. He says, if you have all these things, don't get puffed up. If you don't really have love for each other, you don't have anything. <laughs> If we understood every one of the prophecies of this book, which we don't, if we understood all knowledge about history and the future, which we don't, but if we did and didn't love one another, it would do no good. It means nothing. Because it's all about living together in unity and peace forever. And we'll have perfect knowledge someday, and prophecies will be fulfilled and gone. So those things are relatively can't speak, relatively unimportant 
by comparison. People make prophecy their big deal. They make knowledge of all the ins and outs of something technical their big deal. Well, those things are all fine and balanced. But loving one another and living together in peace and harmony is far more important than those things could ever become. But notice he changes now to defining something in verse 4. He starts talking about what love is, what love does, how love reacts. So he's telling you, you could have all these things in verses 1 through 3, and if you don't have love, you got nothing. Now he says, I'm going to tell you what love is. Beyond the keeping of the law as a definition. But here are some of the characteristics defined, or some of the defining characteristics of love. The first one is what? Love suffers long. You can really suffer long. You can suffer a long time with it. But love is willing to do that. Now, why, why is it when we get puffed up about prophecy or knowledge or some of these things and we tend to sort of get short with other people? Because in vanity we place ourselves above someone because of our superior intellect. Or however you say it. But that is the first thing he mentions, is that charity is willing, or love is willing, to suffer for a long time and is kind. Just kind. Then it goes on. Love envies not, doesn't bought itself, does not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, do strange and wrong things, seeks not her own, but others, is not easily provoked, that's part of patience and long-suffering, is not being easily provoked. Some of us have hair-trigger tempers. And some of us will say that we do. And wish we had patience. And everybody else wishes we did too. <laughs> Doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Oh, did you hear? <laughs> this is the true stuff. I just got an email this morning from somebody who's in a very bitter, hateful attitude over in Africa that I knew some years ago and haven't had any contact with now in probably at least three years, but uh, just bitter to the core. And some of the things that he's bitter about actually did happen in the church, or happened in part. But he has a very skewed view of everything that happened and why, and he's very, very bitter and hateful. <laughs> now, that shouldn't happen in the church either, should it? I mean, some of the things that he named shouldn't have happened in the church. But boy, I don't find anything in here that says that bitterness and hate is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. So we have to find a different way of dealing with these things. Now, we can bring recriminations and hatred towards someone else for their faults or alleged faults or whatever. But that attitude of bitterness and hate and animosity is... That's an attitude of Satan the devil. So, you know, it's the pot and the kettle again. It's not easily provoked. That is, is patient. Thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. But people say, well, this is the truth. They really did do that. 
That's not the kind of truth he's talking about here. If it's scurrilous or gossip or the wrong kind of truth or truth about sin, that should be covered. Because it is the glory of God to cover adversity and sin. But I won't go on with this, but he gives several verses here of defining what love is so that we might not just say, well, I have love. But we need to go through here and read the definition, the characteristics of love, and see if we have those. Because if we don't have the characteristics of love, we don't have love. It's more than just a gooey emotion. So it's defined here. I just want to hone in, though, on the aspect of patience and long-suffering, not on these other things. And those could be in a series of sermons or whatever on love itself. Uh, chapter 6 here of 1 Corinthians. And here I want verse 4. If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Now, is that the way we've done business over the years? Often, those who are least esteemed might have some knowledge, some better judgment than some of those who are puffed up in vanity and who are esteemed pretty highly. This, this isn't really the verse I wanted, is it? That isn't, that isn't what I was after. This happens to me once in a while. I looked at that this morning again, but I wrote it down wrong, I guess. Oh, I'll skip it on. Let's go. There's plenty. I'll have trouble getting through all this anyway. First Timothy 1. First Timothy 1, and here verse 15. Assembly 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ then came into the world to save sinners. So it says, you might have heard this as a rumor and thought it was wrong, but it's right. He came here to save sinners. Remember John 3.16 that everybody uses. He came into the world as God's only begotten Son to save, not to condemn. And Paul is repeating that here. Of whom I am chief. So he takes the humble road here and says, look, I'm a sinner too. And I think I've been one of the worst of sinners. Well, he says, chief, or the worst, in his own mind. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. He says, I am an example of God's long-suffering, or suffering long with mankind. It wasn't just what Paul had done before he was converted, but he was still having problems with himself. And he says, I am a pattern of God's long-suffering. For a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So we're to look back on Paul's life and say, here is a pattern of God's suffering long with a man. It is there to give encouragement to you and me. And then he says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, I accept this pattern. 
I accept what God has put me here for. It is an example to all of us in our sins of how long-suffering God is. Also, Paul's own words about himself, and he's instructing a young minister, Timothy, who had also in his life some patterns of, of problems, of immaturity and faithlessness at some times, that showed. So Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, and he writes a second letter to Timothy uh, in regards to Timothy's problems. But he takes the humble road and says, look, Timothy, I have problems too. And God is using me as an example to everybody that lives hereafter. It'll <coughs> be written down in the book. But Paul needed a lot of patience. And use himself as an example, a poor example in that sense, but an encouragement to Timothy to realize, hey, Timothy, you're not in this boat alone. Uh, I also have my problems. God's using me as an eternal example. First Timothy 6, verse 11. Now, he's taught to hear, to Timothy here, about some problems before this in this very chapter. And we won't review those, but he tells him this in verse 11. But you, instead of these negative things, here's what I want you to do. But you, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto you are also called, and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. We go back to the same type of attitude, doesn't it, that we've already been reading about, over and over and over again. Patience is one of the ones he mentions there in verse 11. Patience and meekness are often put together, because, as I said, a vain, selfish approach is impatient. And to be to choose meekness and humility is when you begin to choose patience. They're interconnected, I think, inseparably. Now let's go to Second Timothy three. Second Timothy three. And here I want verse ten. But you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, suffering long, love, and patience. Now, we read one verse already which mentioned long-suffering and patience together. There has to be some difference in the two words, or Paul would not have used both here in this verse and in the previous one we read. So, let's define these a little more closely. Patience here in verse 10 uh, is from Strong's 5278. Kukomo <coughs> I think is more or less how you say it. And it is defined as, here's, here's the definition of that word in the Greek. Cheerful or hopeful endurance. Not tapping our feet and drumming our fingers and saying, when will they ever, ever show up? That's impatient waiting. But here it is cheerful or hopeful endurance. Uh, constancy. An unevenness of, evenness of attitude. Constantly in a, uh, a patient, joyful, waiting mode. Enduring and patient waiting. Patient waiting. 
Now, the word long-suffering is a little bit different. It's a different word. 31.15, it comes from 31.16. 31.16 says leniently, giving the benefit of the doubt, being lenient, not holding or bearing grudge, in other words, or animosity toward, but being lenient toward one another. Now, if we're going to live together in peace, the bond and the unity of the Spirit in peace, then we do have to be lenient with one another, don't we? We can't be constantly at each other because we see imperfections in each other if we're going to be lenient. So, 31.16 is leniently or patiently. And uh, 31.15, which is actually used here in verse 10, means forbearance, uh, long-enduring temperament. Has to do with temper, doesn't it? So if you're lenient, you're not given to temper. You're losing your temper. And temperance is an evenness of attitude or a constancy, as it said in 3116. So temperance is one of the things that we're supposed to have. And when we lose our temper, that simply means we've lost temperance. We're not being temperate. And losing our temper is something we need to get over. We need to find temperance, not lose our temper. <laughs> God, remember, is slow to anger, slow to wrath, and so is a righteous man. But it is so easy to become wrathful. So there's a little bit of difference in patience. Uh, we, we look forward joyfully in the word that is used here for for patience, and long-suffering has the connotation of suffering, but suffering long and doing it with a patient attitude, being willing to put up with somebody for a long, long time. Again, to use the analogy, we put up with our kids' immaturity for a long, long time, uh, until they reached age 20 and could be called adults, in the biblical uh, definition of adult, and even as adults. We are still patient as parents with our children because you can grow tall, but it's sometimes hard to grow up in emotional maturity and so on. And uh, it does take time. That's the old bumper sticker or on T-shirts, be patient with me. God isn't done with me yet. <laughs> I think that applies here. Very much so. If God's done with me, then I'll might as well just lay over and die. If in this hope life only we have hope, then eat, drink, and be merry, I guess, for tomorrow we die, and that's the end of it. But we look for something beyond that. I just remembered the mud someone gave me soon after arriving here that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may be in Utah. <laughs> Here we are, some of us, trying to learn to get along with one another in patience, in love, long-suffering, and it truly is a challenge for God's people. It always has been. It was back in Worldwide, because we had some knotheads and prune heads and all kinds of heads there, 
And uh, it was our way back in Paul's day because he had those problems in Corinth and in Ephesus and in Colossae. And wherever he went, he had the same problems. It wasn't lack of knowledge of prophecy or history or knowledge of technicalities. It was human problems dealing with one another in humility, meekness, and patience. So we're not unusual. We're just not like God. We're normal for human beings, but we're not normal for God. We're not normal as gods or as kings and priests, so we keep working at it. Let's go to Romans 12. Romans 12. Verse 9. Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. The simulation in the uh, King James doesn't make much sense, but hypocrisy is really what it means. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, and honor preferring one another not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Remember? And many are the afflictions of the righteous and some of those that we could apply here. Patient in tribulation. We read about the patience of Job last week. Continue against them in prayer. So we are going to have trials, troubles, and tribulations, aren't we? He says, don't get frustrated by those. Don't sit down here and get a bad attitude toward man, machine, or God. But just be patient in tribulations. And we will suffer them. We do suffer them. First Thessalonians 5, verse 14. First Thessalonians 5. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward some. Be patient toward all. So he has different categories here of, of difficulties that people are suffering with. Some are unruly. Well, they need to be warned to be careful with their conduct. And not all are unruly, but some are. Then you have the feeble-minded that need to be comforted. Some are feeble-minded, but not all are feeble-minded. I think as the, age, as the church ages, we're all getting a little more feeble-minded. Support the weak. Not all are weak. Some are strong. But be patient toward all. See, some are like this, some are like that, some are like this, but be patient toward everyone. That's something that is all inclusive. Well, this is a pretty important characteristic, isn't it? Well, if it's listed as a fruit of the Spirit, it's got to be important. Maybe it's one that we like to overlook. But we can't afford to do that. And maybe it's good that we get our noses rubbed in it here a little bit by Paul and various others of the writers of the Bible. Second Timothy 4, verse 2. Now, this one I included 
for a reason, and the reason being that, again, he is speaking to the ministry here, speaking to Timothy, who was one, and giving him pastoral instruction on how to deal with God's people, how a minister ought to be, in other words. That's what Second, First, and Second Timothy are all about in Titus. I charge you, speaking to Timothy, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, now, that places this instruction that's to follow on a pretty high level. I charge you in the name of the Father and the Son and the one who's going to judge you when he gets here. Listen up, in other words. This is at a very high level. Preach the word. That's what the ministry is there to do. Be instant, in season, out of season, always being instant to preach the word. I don't know what season means here. I didn't look it up. Maybe it means in the changing of the year, all through the year, whatever season it is, this season and the next season to come. The season you're in and the one that's to come after. In other words, a constancy. Maybe the feast seasons as well. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And if we don't have that happening in the church today, I don't know what we've got. Because we have an awful lot of people who have studied a little bit, or a lot, and figured out that they know better than anyone else. And they have become teachers in their own right. But we have an awful lot of unsound doctrine being promulgated around the country and the world. So, here is how the ministry is to handle unsound doctrine, teachers who have made themselves teachers, and that is to be instant in season and out of season, ready to preach the word, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort, but do it with a lot of patience long-suffering and proper doctrine. That's a pretty tall order there. Now, it's real easy for a minister today to stand up and say, all right, if you don't agree with me, out the door. But I'm told to be very patient with you or whoever might have unsound doctrine. To go ahead and preach correct doctrine over and over and over and be and suffer long with someone who has unsound doctrine. That's instruction to the ministry on how to handle this problem that we're facing today. Just keep preaching the truth. And don't kick somebody out because they might have a different attitude and not unless I'm talking about attitude here, a different idea. I think that can be tempered with this statement, and that is, unless that, added, uh, that idea becomes infectious, in other words, a danger to others. There are quarantine laws in the Bible, and when something becomes infectious or is being passed around and others are being affected by it, then you have to act. I've always said, if someone has a private, personal sin or attitude they're working on, as long as it is private and personal, I can 
worked for a long time with him behind the scenes. Now, once it becomes public and therefore infectious, it has to be dealt with. There has to be quarantine. So if you have some idea which is contrary to what is being taught, keep it to yourself and you won't have to be quarantined. But you start spreading it and you have to be quarantined. Now to you it might be right. And we need a sermon, I think, on how to handle different ideas specifically so that they don't become confusing and frustrating to a lot of people. I won't get into that here. But we do need to be careful and long-suffering with people who have a different idea and hope. Simply, the very basics of human nature. We want what we want, and we want it now. That's self is the basis of impatience. So he says, tribulation works patience, and patience character. It takes strength of character to control your attitude and yield to God when you're having trial, trouble, and tribulation. And then character imparts hope, because as you get your attitude in line and become patient and joyfully waiting for God's answer, then you're developing character, and if you develop character and control yourself, you begin to have hope, don't you? It's when you're letting yourself out of control, you've lost your temperance and found your temper, that we don't have much hope. So he says these things all fall in order. One comes right after the other. They build on each other. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. Hope's one of the big three, isn't it? Faith, hope, and love. So he says if you want to have hope of the kingdom of God, you have trouble that God may have laid on you, or you've caused yourself, or someone else has laid on you. In other words, just whatever tribulation you've got, be patient and yielding. And then you will develop character, and that leads to hope. So if you want more hope of salvation, there's the formula laid out for us. All right, let's go from there to Romans 8. Romans 8. Continues the thought. But we are saved, oh, verse 24, excuse me. Romans 8, 24. But we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he get hope for? I want $20. I got $20 in my hand. I don't have hope. I already got my $20. Now, if you have a lottery ticket in your hand and you hope to win, then you have, well, false hope, probably. <laughs> But the lottery ticket isn't anything unless you set the winning number on it. The $20 bill is, see. We don't have eternal life yet, so we hope for it. But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. 
And there's that word that means joyful, uh, patient, waiting. Joyful waiting. Knowing that it is coming and that we have hope for something that we cannot see. Faith and hope are very close uh, cousins. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're very close in meaning. But there is a great difference in that sense because they're both listed as two of the big three. Faith and hope both look to the future for something you don't have. Hope is a pleasantly waiting attitude. Faith is more... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Faith causes action. If we live by faith, we walk by faith. It has to do with our actions. Faith stirs us to action. And let's go from there to uh, Luke 21. Luke 21. Getting away from personal patience with one another here, we've started the last two or three scriptures into a trend, which we'll continue here a little bit. Um, Luke 21. And here in verse 16. Luke 21, 16. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brothers and kinfolk and friends, and some of you shall like cause to be put to death. Speaking to you and me. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. The whole world is going to hate us. But there shall not an hair of your head perish. In your patience possess you your souls. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, and let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, and so on. But what does he tell us to have? The one characteristic, when when the whole world hates us, when they're killing us, when they're about to try to do us all in, one thing he, one piece of advice he gives, one attitude to have, in other words, in your patience possess you your souls. Don't let it get away from you. Patiently, joyfully wait, knowing that this thing's going to turn out right in the long run. That's something to live by. That's a characteristic we need to develop now. Because this scene that he's talking about is coming probably pretty soon. Could be here in a year or two or three. Who knows? Might be longer, but it, it could be here any time. Things are heating up in the world, the Middle East, critical area. And all over, will they back off? I don't know. Will they have a a little interim peace like they've had over and over, followed by interim war? (laughs) Uh, Or will it keep going this time and get worse and worse until the end comes? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But we do know it can't be too far away. So... Be working on patience now. Uh, when you possess your soul in patience, that means you have a rigid, tight control of your mind and attitude about all these things. In other words, you understand that it is going to end, and we win, as Mr. Armstrong often said. We win in the end. So 
Don't get impatient with the situation and say, man, God, deliver us. We're your people. Help us. Save us. And then become impatient with him because he hasn't. We need to replace you brought us out here in the desert to die with you brought us out here to live. What Israel said, you brought us out here to die. That's real patient, isn't it? <laughs> Day after they crossed the Red Sea. One of the biggest miracles that God ever performed for mankind. And probably a day later, they looked around and said, Man, it's hot and dry out here. You're about to die. No, he took them out there to live and not die. They insisted on dying. Didn't they say, Why will you die, O Israel? Why, oh, why will you die? Have we learned anything since then? Probably not much, because he says when you see all these things, trouble, trouble coming from every side, impatience possess yourself. Not a knowledge of all technicalities, not knowledge of history or prophecy, but in joyful patience. smile when they stick that knife in you. <laughs> because you know you'll wake up in the kingdom of God. People don't like it when we talk like that about having to die and be strung up and our throats cut and tortured and so on. They don't like it when we get into that, especially if you get graphic about it. But it's coming. And it's going to be a whole lot more graphic than I could even begin to describe if you're the one there. <laughs> Whatever I or anyone else might have described and got into blood and gore and hair and eyeballs will not be nearly so bad as you facing. So be building patience and joyful hope in the meantime. That's the advice. Then when it does come, you'll be settled. You will have developed the character to live through that tribulation and be a part of the kingdom of God. You will not re renege on what you believe, because he who is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. So you don't need to worry about that if you're doing what you need to do today. Being patient with God, being patient with one another, and joyfully waiting to fulfill the hope that lies within us. You won't have to worry about it because you will be given the strength then if you're doing the small things today. James 1, verse 3. James 1, verse 3. Well, I'm going to start in verse 12. Or, well, 2, excuse me. Because he gives the greeting in verse 1, and then he begins immediately to give some instruction here in verse 2. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. That is not a natural reaction, is it? Blam, right off the bat, he tells us. Count it all joy when you have troubles, tribulations, and temptations. Knowing this. Now, you can count it joy if you understand this. The trying of your faith works patience. Same thing we read earlier. But let patience have her perfect 
work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Patience is a key element of Christianity, then. The trying, the tribulation, the temptation of your faith works patience. That is one of the key characteristics of God, is patience and long-suffering. So, it has to have a mature work where we have come to possess our souls in patience, as we just read. And if we have learned patience, what did he say? That you may be perfect and entire, one and nothing. Patience is a key ingredient of the character of God. There is a key ingredient, or impatience is a key ingredient of human nature. Just the opposite of the way we normally think. All right, let's go from there to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. And here I want verse 12. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience are closely related. Now, we have people like Abraham, whom he's talking about here, and, and other saints, who waited with faith and with patience. That's why Abraham is the father of the faithful. He truly waited and acted in great faith. With hope, you wait. With faith, you move. You move forward. You live in faith. What you do is by faith. It's an active form. So they, through faith and patience, will inherit the promises. He puts faith and patience right there together. So this is not an unimportant subject whatsoever. Hebrews 10. Here I want uh, verse 36. Verse 35, we'll pick up the context. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Sometimes it seems almost futile. We struggle and we struggle to keep the commandment of God. But he says, you, 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 you have need of patience. But after you've kept the commandments, we've worked at it, we've worked at it day in and day out, day after day, hour after hour, we work at keeping the commandments of God. He says, now have patience that you'll receive the reward. Don't give up. A lot of people have become impatient and given up, haven't they? Your friends, your relatives, your husbands, your wives, your daughters, your sons, mine, they've given up because they lack the patience to wait after they had obeyed. And we expect blessing from God, don't we? But he expects patience from us first. Here again, it's a contingency situation. Him blessing us, him giving us his benefits in great measure have to do with how patiently we wait. 
Because remember, we have trials, troubles, and tribulations that patience may have for perfect work. So if we're still impatient, or we start getting nervous, or we start getting frustrated or agitated, then God says, well, guess I can't give them much reward yet. They have to learn patience. Hebrews 12, verse 1. He's just given us a whole cloud of witnesses here in verse chapter 11 of those who have been faithful to God. And he said, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This is a lifelong commitment. You can't just say, well, I'm going to be good for ten minutes, or I'm going to be good for ten hours, or I'm going to be good for ten years, and then if God hasn't given me salvation... I'm going to take my ball and bat and go home. No, we patiently run this race. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Will we give up at the first sign of shame and frustration as a result of people turning against us? Will we become impatient with them when they criticize us and tell us we're wrong and that we're nuts? Or do we just patiently take it? You know, when, when our self is belittled, it's easy to rise up against that. Just don't do that. Just take it patiently, just as Christ did. Just hang on. God will take care of us. We don't have to worry about that. If we're doing the things we ought to be doing, we can joyfully wait, and it doesn't make any difference which stones and arrows they throw at us. We know what we are doing is right, and we better. Then all we have to do is wait patiently, and God will provide. How many times in the prophecies does it say, and they'll say, where is their God? No, the God that was going to deliver him. Where is he? I don't see him around. Kind of like the prophets of Baal there with Elijah. When he taunted them, where is your God? He must be asleep. Scream louder. Wake him up. He got really nasty with them. Maybe he's busy with something else. And we're going to have people taught us when we're doing what's right. The prophets of Baal weren't. Just take it patiently. That's part of the lesson we're learning here. God will save in the long run. Psalm 37. Start wrapping this up here pretty quickly now. Psalm 37. And here let's begin in verse 4. <clears throat> Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself also in the eternal, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. That's one of my favorite verses, I think, in the whole Bible. That if we truly delight ourselves in him, he will give us the desires of our heart. What are the desires of your heart? I mean, the legal ones. The real, the right desires. Peace, happiness, security, health, longevity, 
Commit your way into the eternal. Trust also in, in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the eternal, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. We don't have to worry about what's happening out there in the world. God says if we'll wait patiently in him, live his way, this is all going to work out, and we win in the long run. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the eternal, they shall inherit the earth. Patient continuance until he fulfills the promises that he has made. The world out there can't see his promises, and they can't see that they're going to be fulfilled. We read his promises, and we, in faith and hope, obey him and serve him and delight him, because we believe that we're going to receive those things. We, we're going to wait as patiently as is required to receive what he has promised us. Romans 15. Romans 15. And here I want verse 4. Well, let's start in verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. But every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, don't we have a saying? I'll just do whatever I please for me. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached you fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So we've learned to joyfully wait, and we keep reading the Scriptures, which give us hope. Christ didn't please himself, and the reproaches of them that reproached him fell on me, he said. And we were talking last week about whether Christ, well, I mean, whether he could use a goat at the Passover or not. And perhaps, in one sense, it could be adequate. Because what did he do? He took all our sins on him. He took on the goat sins. He was the Lamb of God. But when those sins were pronounced on him, he was like a goat. He had our sins then. And he had to die for them. And the other analogy, which is similar and actually the same, is that where you had the two goats on atonement, remember? One was sent out into the wilderness, which was Satan, and one was put to death. And in that sense, Christ represents a goat, having to be put to death for our sins. So in a, a goat, when you understand it, is appropriate in that sense. But all the examples of Christ show him in his character and sinless as a lamb. But he can carry both types because of you and me. That's why he had to come and die, to carry those sins. <coughs> All right, let's go on then to 1 Peter 2, see what Peter says about this. 1 Peter 2, 
and verse 20. First Peter 2.20. For what glory is this if when you be buffeted <laughs> you got the problem, and somebody tells you you got the problem, what glory is it if you take that patiently? I mean, you am the guy. Or what glory is it? Let's see, I already read that. Uh, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So if you didn't do the deed, didn't think the thought, and you're accused of it anyway, and then you're patient, that's acceptable to God. But boy, that's when it's hard to be patient, isn't it? When you really didn't do what they said you did, when you really didn't think what they thought you thought, then we can rise up in righteous anger in a hurry and lose patience. Because we don't like to be falsely accused. Now, that is a real test, is when somebody says something about you that simply isn't true. If you take that patiently and you don't rise up and lose your temper over that, then you've got something that's acceptable to God. It's no big deal if you take that patiently, which you actually did. <clears throat> for even who and to were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He even said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Not only did he take it patiently, and he hadn't done it, but he asked for forgiveness for those who perpetrated it on him. For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls, whom you should act just like. That's what he say. He's the pattern. He's the one who did these things and kept his mouth shut and forgave, even though they had not repented. Ask the Father to forgive them, even though they hadn't repented. He asked the Father to bend the rule which he himself had preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't he? Forgive them. Oh, maybe I'm looking at that wrong. He says, if you forgive, you will be forgiven. That's what he had preached in the Sermon on the Mount. The thought occurred, and I didn't get it all. <laughs> but that happens to me. I short circuit. But he did ask for them to be forgiven when they had not repented. That, that was what I was leading to. All right, let's close this off now in Revelation. 13 and 14. Revelation, go to chapter 13. Let's see this whole thing winding up here. Chapter 13 is talking about the beast who will destroy all over the earth. And most people are going to bow down and worship the beast. They're going to accept the beast. They old beast. You are the most wonderful beast that has ever lived. And uh, we worship you. Maybe... A lot of people who are starting to worship beasts instead of God and, and they're recognizing what man is as a potential God will be some of the leaders in that. I don't know. But notice verse 7 about this beast. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Not just to make war, but to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Satan is able to give that. 
He offered it to Christ who rejected it. But the beast accepts it. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. This is going to be a powerful thing that is coming on this earth. With all miracles and fire from heaven given by Satan, all the power that Satan can muster is going to be conveyed through this beast that is about to rise on the earth. And it is going to capture the worship, the praise, the adoration of the whole earth, except the few written in the book of life. So if any man have an ear, listen to this, he says. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Patience and faith linked together here. We patiently wait for Jesus Christ who's going to put down the beast. The world will accept the beast and say this must be it. This is the Christ. False Christ. But we have to patiently and righteousness wait in faith and we will be delivered. It's repeated here in chapter 14 now. It talks about Babylon falling in verse 8 twice. Verse 9, the third angel followed him saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his end, wrath on the beast. And, uh, which is poured out with mixture into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who gets the last, well, last's a bad word, I guess. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So we patiently wait through all this horror that's coming. And we wind up being kings and priests on the earth if we have that fruit of God's Spirit, or that one of those fruits at least, or one of the key of those fruits is patience, along with faith and love and everything else. But it's brought out very prominently here as one of the things that's going to see us through if we've developed and come to have the kind of patience that will see you through anything. And if we keep the commandments and have faith, then that patience is going to have its perfect work and will be part of the kingdom of God. So don't overlook patience as one of those characteristics that we need to be working on with all our heart, with each other and with God to patiently wait for him. And as we approach the Passover now, we need to be reminded of his patience with us.